Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is November the 7th, 2016. This is episode 1894 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, and it's a listener feedback show because it's a Monday. I've got a bunch on deck for you. going to try to give you a kind of a longer show today. Uh, because I'll be giving you a show Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week. Thursday morning, very early, I'll be driving deep into the north, but I'll still be in the south. I'm talking about Missouri. I'll be going to uh, put the smack down on a, a couple of whitetails, hopefully. Uh, a listener of the show has invited me to hunt at his place, and I'll be uh, up there Thursday through Monday, maybe uh, Tuesday. It's a full day drive, so Thursday will be all day drive, and Friday I'm going to scout around. Opening day is Saturday, so I'm going to actually get out and do some hunting this year, and I've got another trip. Coming in December, so I'm actually going to go out and, well, just to be blunt, I'm going to do some murdering of Bambi this year. I haven't been able to do that for the past few years. I'm going to take some time to do that, so that means you will be uh, getting episodes of TSP Rewind Thursday and Friday this week. Um, I know it seems like there's been a lot of that lately since I came out with the concept, but uh, this is the time of the year for uh, for turning Bambi into chops and steaks, and it's the time of year for my vacation, the time of year for my workshop, and the time of year for holidays and stuff like that, so... That's just the way that it's 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 gonna be, and I'd rather do that than leave you without a show. So, I have a a, a full boat up for you today. Here's what we're gonna be talking about today. First of all, here's what we're not gonna be talking about today: Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, the Ass Clown Circus 2016, aka the election. We won't be talking about it at all. This will be your one outlet today where you don't have to hear about that over and over and over and yawn. Okay. So what we are gonna talk about is uh, well, we're gonna talk about the state, man, and how. Screwed up the state is. Uh, woman is going to jail for selling drugs? No. No, no, no. Had to be drugs, right? For selling uh, counterfeit money? No, no. A plate of ceviche. Yeah, food. Um, a plate, by the way. Yeah. Uh, more on building credits. Some suggestions from a listener following up from last week. Uh, parting out versus whole roasting of a turkey as we head toward Turkey Day. We have a good police chief that doesn't back up his oath-breaking officers. Um, we have the same anarchist question again, kind of flavored a different way, but basically without the state, how would we fill in the blank? A teacher in New York is being paid $94,000 a year to literally do nothing, sit around and sleep. And he wants to work and he's suing for the right to work since he's still employed and being paid. Elon Musk says robots will take your job and the government will have to pay your wage. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Getting started with a new business and transition from employee to entrepreneur. We have a cool poem called The Quiet War that was written by a new listener that was told about the show from a longtime listener. We have the ins and outs of homestead cats. Yes, felines on the homestead. And a jack was right to finish things off. And this one doesn't make me want to take my airsoft gun and shoot myself in the head. It's not really great news, but it's not, you know, there's a lot of jack was right. I'm like, oh, whenever I see that in the in, in a subject line of an email, oh, what now? No, this is about scan and go, uh, which is something I talked about five years ago, at least five years ago, and definitely in the last two or three years a lot, about a way that, you know, the entire concept of shopping in supermarkets is going to change. Well, that's come to Sam's Club. 
And once it comes to Sam's Club, sooner or later, it's going to be everywhere. That's just the way that it works. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we, uh, we get into that stuff, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out readymaderesources.com to learn more today. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1894 because the episode is 1894. Here's what I have today. I have from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. A treason forged in dishonor. I have honesty is not the best policy for the midterm elections. And I have notable births. Jack Benny, comedian and master of the pregnant pause. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, was born this year. Nikita Khrushchev, leader of the Soviet Union, he will say, history is on our side, we will bury you, referring to NATO members in Israel. And Alessalus Huxley, author of the dystopian novel Brave New World. In other news... The plague bacillus is discovered. Andrean Yersin discovers a little pest while in China. So the name bacteria is Yersinia pestis. Um, the 4,000 factory workers strike after the Pullman sleeping car company reduces wages. And Labor Day is made into a federal holiday. President Cleveland is trying to mend fences with the unions. It's not going to help. I'll read for you today. A treason forged in dishonor. Germany has occupied northern France for several years now. Wait a minute. I thought that wasn't until World War One, Two. No, see, look. Germany has occupied northern France for several years now. The local dialects are German-based languages and Yiddish, spoken by the Jews of the region, borrows heavily from high German. Thus, when secrets about the new French supercannon is leaked to the Germans, suspicion immediately falls upon Captain Alfred Dreyfus, a Jew born in German-occupied French territories. His army career has been exemplary except for that dust-up with a general at the academy who didn't want Jews becoming officers. At this time, many Jews are officers, even general officers, but bigotry is still with us. Dreyfus is given the opportunity to confess his treason, but he refuses. He also refuses to apply, the, to apply a pistol to his head that his, confessor, that his confessor supplies. The military justice system has not changed since imperial times. In fact, a soldier is sent to the firing squad this year after he... Uh, flings a button at the judges during his court-martial. So the military court is mostly about setting examples to encourage the others. Documents are forged, and every odd fact remembered turned into phrase is twisted into an act of treason. The captain is convicted. By next year, he will public be publicly humiliated, his sword broken. He will be sent to Devil's Island. Years later, he will be offered a pardon. Dreyfus will respectfully tell them where to shove their pardon. Eventually, he'll be exonerated and returned to service as a major. My take by Alex Shrug. The Germans had French military totally penetrated with spies. But once the public was focused on Dreyfus, it became politically unacceptable to follow any other path. Like the Italians in Louisiana who were lynched for being found not guilty of murder, or the famous trial of Sacco and Vanzetti in 1921, the public simply knew who was guilty or innocent, 
and things like fair trials or rules of evidence that interfered with the correct result would not be tolerated. We promise never to forget Sacco and Vanzetti, but I have found very few who still remember that trial and the evidence that was forged. Those men were executed for a crime they might not have committed. Don't shed too many tears, though. They were not nice men, but it was our duty to prove that they did it, not only to protect the accused, but to protect our souls. We are burdened with a herd mentality. We say that we resist the herd, but before we know it, we are wondering how we got caught up in it all. We band together to fight those who would attack our family, our friends, our community. That's a good thing, but it can turn into a bad thing when we are not careful. Um, I'd like to propose another way of looking at this, the concept of democracy. Um, democracy, without uh, sufficient restrictions upon it in the form of, let's say, a constitutional republic, is herd mentality where if 51% of people say something is okay, it becomes okay no matter how bad it is. And, and the problem is we weaken the restrictions upon government is we empower the democracy. I know you've been taught that democracy is a good thing. Democracy is only a good thing if you have options other than doing what everybody else is doing. It's the old saying, right? A democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. A republic is two wolves and a sheep. The sheep has an AK-47. And the wolves are going to have to find something else for dinner. Our nation is becoming more and more a democracy and less and less a constitutional republic. And while I am personally for either a completely minimized state or no state at all, I'd like to say that I am also for If we have a document that founds our government that says the way our government's supposed to run and we're held to our part of the deal, the government should be held to its side of the deal too. But government does what it wants and the herd mentality can be used to burn people at the stake, metaphorically or realistically. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's get into uh, your emails for me today. Remember, if you'd like to... Uh, to send me an email to have read on the show uh, and discussed uh, or question or anything else, you can just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put TSPC in the subject line and then article for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack, what have it. Uh, this one comes from Joss. It just says, this pisses me off in so many ways. And it's a link to an article on reason.com. And uh, it's on their hit and run blog. Here's the title. Single mother facing prison for selling homemade Mexican dish to undercover cop. Prosecutor, I do not write laws. I enforce them. <laughs> I was only following orders, right? Come on. Here, Marzita, Mar Marzita Rulis, a single mother, is going to trial. Let me stop for a second. Single mother faces... Look, I don't care if she's a single mother. I don't care when the veteran being thrown from his home, whatever. Look, listen, we have to stop this shit, first of all. All of the people in alternative media that hear this show, stop this shit. It doesn't matter that she's a single mother. She could be Susie freaking homemaker with a wonderful husband and six kids that make the kids from like uh, eight is enough look like hooligans. And it's still wrong. Right? It's still wrong. It's still wrong. It doesn't matter that she's a single mother. Anyway, Martina Ruiz, a single mother, is going to trial and could be sentenced to a year in prison for selling a couple bucks worth of a homemade dish, her Mexican ceviche, to an undercover police officer. Ruiz, who hails from Stockton, California. Stop, hold on. Stockton, California. Are you the people that went freaking bankrupt? Stockton, California went bankrupt as a city. 
Think about that as I read the rest of this. It's part of an informal potluck group on Facebook where people who like to cook and trade recipes, cooking tips, and occasionally dishes. It's not uncommon for someone to offer a small amount of money for an equally small amount of food, says Rudas. According to Fox 40, someone in a Facebook group offered to buy a plate of Ruiz's signature ceviche, a Mexican seafood dish. That person was an undercover cop carrying out a sting. Twelve potluck participants were arrested for selling food without a permit. Ruiz refused to plead guilty and accept lesser sentence of probation. So her case is headed to trial. San Joaquin County Deputy District Attorney Kelly McDaniel defended her decision to prosecute. I don't write the laws, I enforce them. And the legislator has felt this is a crime, said San Joaquin County Deputy District Attorney Kelly McDaniel. She says selling food not subject to health department inspection puts whoever eats it in real danger. Not to mention it undercuts the owners who do get permits to make their food. She says the 209 Food Spot Facebook group was sent a warning before the charges were handed down. Food prepared in a facility that does not inspect, it creates a risk to the public, said McDaniel. You are a piece of shit, McDaniel. You are a piece of shit. The, the, the people of, of, of your district should not even wait until the next election that you're standing to, to throw your ass out. You should be impeached. And Seriously. They should recall whatever recourse they have. They should get rid of your ass for wasting taxpayer dollars on stupid shit like this. Let me read the rest of this article. I'll give you my thoughts. It's true that McDaniel didn't make the law, but the people who did probably intended for her to exercise discretion in cases like this one. No, they did not. No, they did not. Anyway, where the alleged perpetrator really didn't do anything wrong. There's a world of difference between operating an illegal business and occasionally accepting some kind of compensation exchange for a plate of food. The latter is none of the government's business. Listen, this is how I feel. If I make food and you want it and I give it to you, actually the government's completely okay with that. But if you give me money for it and I give it to you, that's when they get involved. Neither one is the government's business. There's one line here that really gets to the heart of this. Okay? One line that really gets to the heart of this. Not to mention it undercuts business owners who do get permits to make their food. They're not worried about those people being undercut. They're worried about themselves being undercut. See, those permits cost money. And bankrupt, bankrupt stocked in California wants their money. I don't care that you want to serve one little, you know, plate of food. There's a bunch of lessons here. One, government is scum. Period. The state is scum. State equals scum. Over and over and over again, if you have the apparatus of the state, it's only a matter of time before something like this happens. Just down the road from me a couple of months ago on, on Nextdoor, which is like Facebook for your neighborhood. I really recommend you get on it. Uh, I saw a guy harassed by a local police department over in Lakeside because he had the audacity to park his car on his own grass. He was selling his Corvette, corner lot, so he parked it kind of like, you know, on an angle on, on his corner lot on his own grass that he owned. And one of the people called, there's a guy, he got his car parked on a grass. It's not an HOA, it's the city. The city came out and said, move the car or we'll find you. And if you don't move the car after we find you, we'll tow your car. We'll steal your property. See, this is where the state always leads to scumbaggery. There's another big lesson here, though. So I was wondering, because people were saying, you know, you know, all this stuff you see people on YouTube making moonshine and stuff, and, uh, you know, how they, how do they not end up in jail or whatever. And it, it's a very complaint-driven system. And it's also a, a system where doing certain things openly is more likely to, to cause problems than just doing them close. So 
I, I was like, how many people do get arrested for moonshine? So I, I went on Google News and I did a search for moonshine and arrested. And I found two cases in the last year in Google News of somebody being arrested for moonshine. And one was basically like a, a drug dealer. They got busted for drugs and then they found a still and stuff and they went ahead and busted them for that too. But the other one was just like this, selling stuff on Facebook. There was a person selling moonshine on Facebook that was actually not selling moonshine, really. Because moonshine would be, you know, the stuff that you make and you, you, the fuel you make in your house that you might accidentally spill in your mouth, right? Moonshine. Okay, so this was actually a guy that had a connection. A guy and a girl had a connection to um, uh, a, a guy that worked for a distillery and he was basically stealing it. And he got a cop called the girl and said he wanted to buy some. And she said, you're not a cop, are you? And he said, well, of course not, because I don't want to go to jail. He goes, I'm not a cop. So then she sold him the stuff. They met, and he he got arrested, and or she got arrested, and the guy she was working with got arrested. And, of course, they rolled right over on the guy that was their supplier, and he got arrested uh, for theft, which actually at least that was a crime. But you see what I'm saying? If you're going to be a part of some kind of an underground group like this, don't do it on Facebook. Don't do it on Facebook. I mean, I would... And, and then the other thing is, can you imagine what a shitty police department these people in Fort Stock, or, or Stockton, California are? I mean, you guys are the most useless, freaking piece of dirt law enforcement officers. It, it's not like somebody called up and they're like, oh, God, I got to go do this. You ran a sting? You ran a sting for people exchanging food? You guys are pieces of shit. You're pieces of shit. You're pieces of shit. One more time, just so you understand. I want somebody, somebody out there knows somebody on the Fort Stockton Police Department. I want you to send this to them. The Fort Stockton, or I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Fort Stockton. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm not at the top of my game. I'm still sick, okay? Stockton, California Police Department is populated by piece of shit oath-breaking officers that have nothing better to do than run a sting on Facebook for a lady selling a plate of seafood, you guys are maggot scumbags. And don't think you'll ever get a chance to arrest me. I will never step foot in Stockton, California. Never, ever, ever, ever. I don't care how much I was paid to do it. You'll never get the opportunity because you guys are such scum. I will never do anything that could create the potential for me to contribute revenue to your city Ever, ever. If you live in Stockton, California, you tell the local PD to listen to this show, this episode, so they can hear what they are, and then get your shit up for sale and move the hell out of that dump. Let's go on to something else, because I am going to get my airsoft gun and shoot myself in the head if I stay on this one for much longer. And if you'd like to read the article for yourself, the article will be linked in the show notes today. By the way, the officers in Stockton, California are oath-breaking pieces of shit. And the prosecutor is a brain-dead idiot. How about improving your credit? So last week I had a question about that, and I gave some thoughts about, you know, my softened stance on credit cards and what to do and what not to do. Uh, but it says, uh, Jack, you had a, this is from Ben in New Hampshire. You had a caller on Friday, 23, and looking to raise their credit score to purchase land. I was in a similar situation this year. 29, never owned any property. Had a credit score of 663 in January this year. By May it was 710 and is currently 732. Here's what I did to get together to get there. Sign up for CreditKarma.com. It's absolutely free. Unlike other free credit apps, it will actually give you recommendations for raising your credit. This is a sponsored advertising, though, so you must be careful. That's him saying that, not me, and he's right. Okay. Number two, get a credit card. Credit Karma will recommend cards that you to you that it thinks you will qualify for. Look for the following things in it. 
One, no annual fee. Two, the ability to pay it off multiple times a month. This is the most important part of being safe with credit cards. I have personally found Capital One Visa cards and Southwest Visa cards do this. I had one American Express that did not. So what he's saying is you want a credit card that you can make payments on and pay off without waiting for a monthly statement. So you can, like, every week pay it off. Okay? <clears throat> on, on that note, number three, set a reminder in your phone to pay off your credit card every week and do it. As your credit builds, sign up for more cards with higher credit limits. Once you have two or three cards, don't get any more and maybe cancel one of the first ones you had. The key to boosting your credit is to have a high available credit with low credit utilization. So you want to have a high credit limit and use none of it. If you pay your bills every month and have a check or have to check your bank account, when you, if you can't pay your bills every month or have to check your bank account when you put gas in your car, don't even think about doing this. Ben in New Hampshire. I agree. If, if you're worried about money, then you need to worry about saving money till you're not worried about money. Then you can worry about your credit. Seriously. Okay. Um, I will say one thing about this. He says the key is have high available credit and low credit utilization to a point. There is a point where having too much credit available that you're not using can actually be detrimental. Here's how that works. Um, a lender is looking at loaning you money, let's say a few hundred thousand dollars to buy a house, and you have uh, available to you $50,000 worth of credit and you're not using any of it at all. The concern to that lender is that that credit is like a blank check that you can go get into more debt with. So if it goes too high against use utilization, it can be a problem. In the stages that Ben's talking about, it never will be. But there was actually a point where we were getting a mortgage and we were trying to get the best rate we could and actually canceling a credit card we weren't using made our credit score go up because we had like so much available credit that, you know, by taking that one away, we went up. So it's, it's an odd thing. But I, I do believe in services like Credit Karma if you're smart about how you use them and understand kind of the stuff that Ben gave us there. So uh, let's take another one. This one comes from my favorite hippie and, uh, and woofer and, and, and audio video guy and, and just good guy all around, John Schmada. John says, I have a question about parting out my turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. I've heard you say that uh, cut chicken should be cooked differently. Is one of the same held true for turkeys? If so, why don't people part out turkeys for Thanksgiving if they come out better that way? What advice would you give to somebody looking to up their Thanksgiving game this year by parting their bird out ahead of time? Who doesn't have a smoker or a fryer? My personal plan. Sunday, fresh bird, part out breasts, thighs, wings, legs like a chicken. Place in brine with rest of carcass. Make turkey broth stock. Salvage neck and back meat at one hour in. Uh, Monday, make turkey marinade. Place turkey uh, turkey broth, as in oil and fat, honey, apple cider vinegar, fresh garlic, fresh sage, rosemary salt, maybe some orange zest. Tuesday, remove turkey from brine and place into marinade. Thursday, cook breasts in a roaster. Uh, leftover marinade on bottom of roaster. Cook wings in and dark meat in oven or maybe grill, possibly coat with Michael Jordan's uh, powdered honey. Mm, sounds pretty good. Uh, so here we go on this. I don't know about using turkey broth as a marinade. I, I just don't know. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It probably can't hurt anything. Honey, apple cider, vinegar, and all of those herbs would probably be really good. But let's start out with the first thing. Why don't people part their turkeys out for Thanksgiving? Well, I want you to think about what Thanksgiving especially has become in our country. The family, the friends... And it's it, it's it, it, a feast of extravagance. 
And it's very much not just the amount of food and having everybody there and having, you know, a day that normally would be for work that's not for work anymore. And usually the next day it's a Friday and that's usually off. And you have this long weekend and lots of football and all that good stuff. It's also a big part about ambiance and presentation. And if you think about it, when would you cook an entire turkey ever? You know, especially a, you know, like 18, 20-pounder, something like the 22-pounder, 24-pounder. When would you ever do that? And the answer is Christmas, Thanksgiving. You'd have to have some kind of an event, right? You, you would never cook a whole turkey for a family of four. It's just too much food at once. You might do it and then break it up or whatever. But in general, we don't go out and, what do you feel like for dinner tonight, honey? Well, I'd like a turkey, Tom. That sounds good. Uh, here's a, a 18 pound turkey. Yeah, that works. Let's go home and, and, and cook it up and you and me and Jimmy and Susie will sit down and eat it. Right? So it's like it's a special thing. It's a whole turkey. Look at it. Wow. Right? And then, you know, you roast this bird and it, it's, it, it, the smell fills up the house and it, it comes out and the skin's all golden and crisp and it sits there and it looks beautiful. But you can do it really well. We've had past shows. You can look up Keith Snow Thanksgiving on the show, uh, the website, and find old shows where we've talked about how to do it and get it bang on, and it does work. But it usually doesn't for most people. Usually you end up with things like the breast is done, but some of the thigh is not quite done. Or it's the thigh, all the dark meat's nicely done, but the breast is sort of dry. And it's, it's because you have these big different muscle groups. So people do it because they like the presentation. But... You could still have a presentation because most people don't carve their turkey at the table. I don't. I think it's ridiculous to carve your turkey at the table because, you know, one person's done eating before you've served the last person. So usually if I do make a whole bird, what I do is I actually cut the breast cutlets off the bone and slice them. And then I take the, the, the drumsticks off and I take the thighs off the drumsticks And I pull, like you're pulling pork, the thigh meat, into pieces, and I make a pile of dark meat. And then you got your two things of white meat, and then your two drumsticks. And then I usually put the wings, cut the wingtips off the wings, cut the wings into four sections, and set those there for people who like to pick it up and eat it. And I serve it like that. It makes a beautiful presentation. You leave the skin on the breast, and when you slice it, you kind of push it back together so people can just take it, but it all looks all pretty. See? So, so if you're going to do that anyway, you can cut the bird up. So I think John's plan for cutting the bird up, basically in the leg quarters and breast cutlets, is a good one. Okay, the, the big difference here is you have white meat that cooks faster, has less fat in it, and is less dense. And that's why it cooks faster. You can cook them at different temperatures, but it's not really about different temperatures, it's about duration and time. So what I would recommend you consider doing is going ahead and taking that breast off, right, and take those leg quarters and just cook them. You can cook them together, but you can probably take your, your breast out first. And then here's the other thing. Once you take them apart, they'll actually come out pretty close to cooking the same duration because you don't have all of those bones and all that cavity sucking the heat up, and you got the legs on the bottom and the breast on the top, and everything's kind of out of whack. So you can just roast them. Now, here's what I do. John doesn't have a smoker, but I take my pieces and I put them in the Bradley electric smoker and I smoke them for like an hour and a half, two hours. And then I wrap them up and I cook them in the oven. 
And then I, I take them into the oven. I cook them till they're just about done. And then I take the wrapping off of them and go under the broiler for just long enough to crisp the skin. And you get just this perfect result. And by cooking them wrapped up in foil, what you're going to get is a very even, and you're not going to lose a lot of moisture. And just to know when it's done, you just use an instant read meat thermometer. And when you do that and you cook it in pieces, your instant read meat thermometer will give you very good results at making sure the meat's done. Uh, another way to make turkey, though, that's actually pretty good is those big electric roaster pans. Those those work great. So John says he's going to use those. And those would work well, too, with a parted-out bird. So, you know, here's my thing. There's no wrong way to do this, but I kind of think Thanksgiving, if you're not confident in what you're doing, may not be the time to go off the reservation. So you can eat turkey other times. So maybe make one for you and, and the wife and Billy and Tammy and... Uh, you know, at some time other than a holiday and determine your method and your times and things like that. Uh, if you're comfortable cooking a whole bird, don't part it out just because I said so and John said so, right? But I, I do think it's actually a much better way to do things. Because you, you think about the size of this animal and what other animal of that size would we cook whole? I guess maybe a, a roasted pig would be about it, but those usually are flattened out really nicely, not in this big kind of chunky block. So anyway, those are my thoughts, John, on the marinade, the, the brining, definitely. I love brining meat uh, that I'm going to cook. Any large piece of meat, uh, good old-fashioned, traditional uh, uh, salt brine. I'll give you kind of my go-to basic brine recipe. And, you know, you, you scale it up to make as much brine as you need. But a quarter cup of salt, kosher is, is the best for this, uh, or sea salt, either one, and a quarter cup of uh, brown sugar to four cups of water. And mix that together. That's your. I mean, you can do anything you want from there. I usually throw in like a handful of black peppercorns and like uh, like a like a, a, a small handful of uh, like dehydrated garlic uh, as well because I just kind of like those additions. But you know, you're you and you can do things. I've done hot peppers in my brines and, and all kinds of stuff. I've done mustards, uh, you know, mustard seeds and, and what have you. But the base always quarter cup of salt, quarter cup of brown sugar, four cups of water. And, and, and try that the next time you're going to do anything. Like you're going to smoke a pork shoulder. Mix that up. Get a bag. Stick it in there. Put enough of the brine in to cover it. Seal the bag up. Put it in the refrigerator. Flip it over a couple times over the next day. You know, do it today. Like let's say this morning. And then you're going to smoke it. Like you'd say like Friday. You get up. You're going to smoke a shoulder on Saturday. So make your brine up before you go to work. Put it in the refrigerator. Uh, when you come home from work, flip it. Maybe before you go to bed, flip it again. Give it a little bit of a massage. In the morning, take it out. About an hour before you're going to actually uh, start the smoke and you know, kind of dry it off and put it on a rack where it can dry. Set it in the refrigerator uncovered, and it'll get tacky. Okay, it'll get tacky. And when it gets tacky, when you go to smoke it, it's going to take the smoke. Right. So that didn't really apply to the turkey the way John's doing it, but there's your... You know, for anything, basic brine recipe, because I know that's going to come up. So I just jumped all over the police in a prior segment for being a bunch of oath-breaking idiots. Um, I have some oath-breaking idiots to talk about in this story, but that's not the uh, star of the show here. The star of the show is a police chief who's an oath-keeper. And I don't mean in the defunct organization that's gone all Alex, Alex Jones. I mean, he keeps his oath. Here we go. Um, this came to me from... Todd, uh, no, Jason, 
And he says, Todd is my wife's uncle. And Todd is the police chief here. On the day, on the day in June that Todd Axtell became the police chief in St. Paul, he happened to meet Frank Baker, a local resident who wished him well in his new job. And then the next night, police dog bit Mr. Baker on the leg and a police officer kicked him, leaving him hospitalized for two weeks with collapsed lungs and large lacerations. As with so many violent police encounters across the country, the incident was captured on a grainy dash camera video with officers yelling commands at Mr. Baker, an African American man in his fifties, shrieking in pain. But when the footage was released on Friday, it came, uh, with something not often seen in such cases, an apology. Quote, I'm disappointed and upset by what the video shows, end quote, said Chief Axel, who met with Mr. Baker this summer while he was hospitalized and again on Friday to offer his deepest apologies. Chief Axel said he had suspended the canine handler, Officer Brian Fernd, Brian Asshole, uh, for 30 days, rejecting a 10-day suspension recommended by the local review board. <sighs> Just trying not to snap my gasket right there. The police department declined to comment on any discipline for the officer who kicked Mr. Baker, citing ongoing personnel matter. Officer Asshole said in his report that Mr. Baker, who was sitting in his car talking on a cell phone, matched the description officers received, a person with a gun, a black male with dreadlocks, and a white T-shirt. The officer wrote that Mr. Baker got out of his car as requested but stopped cooperating. The police never found a gun. The officers very much feared for their safety, very much believed this was a person with a gun, said Chris Watchler, a lawyer from the St. Paul Police Federation who represents rank-and-file officers. The union's position at this point is that force was used, used was appropriate under the circumstances, Mr. Watchler said, and if a person would have complied, no force would have been necessary whatsoever. Hold on. So the, the frickin' cops... Okay, the rank and file officers, the union, the cop union says, even after they know this guy wasn't guilty, didn't do anything wrong, kicking the shit out of him and have a dog tear flesh from his leg was appropriate because he didn't do exactly what he was told. Oath-breaking pieces of shit. Okay, Chief Axtell disagreed and said that he ordered additional training for the officers in light of the incident. In his disciplined letter to Officer Frank Asshole, he said that the tactics were reckless at best and amounted to conduct unbecoming a police officer, among several other violations. Quote, the content of this video does not reflect the way we strive to do our job day in and day out, he said in a news conference. This simply isn't the St. Paul way. The mayor of St. Paul, Chris Coleman, said in a statement that he was, quote, deeply disturbed by the video and confident that appropriate discipline will be taken. I'm not going to read the rest of the article. You can. It's in the show notes already. There's a picture of this man's leg. It's a horrible wound by this police dog. Um, Chief Axel, if you're listening. And hopefully, since you have a family member that, that sent this to me, you will. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for standing up on the side of right. I want to tell you that I appreciate you and your service. And I want to tell you that you have a lot of work to do. The review board that recommended 10 days needs to be reviewed. Um, I question seriously how, how this happened with anything other than basically roided up cops that, 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 that just didn't think the law applied to them because They were the law themselves. And I think that your review board that recommended a 10-day suspension, that review board needs to be reviewed. I don't know how much power you have as a chief, but I'd like to see you clean out as much as you can because you've got a systemic problem. When you have a lawyer coming back for the officer saying this was acceptable and it's the man's fault because he didn't give 100% compliance to what he was asked to do, when you've got a guy laying on the ground being kicked while he's laying on the ground, 
while a dog's biting them is despicable. The fact that the review board said, well, yeah, it's suspended for 10 days. Um, no. And, and I, I'm going to bet, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and vouch for you that 30 days is probably as much as you could do within your powers because of police unions and protectionism and all that. Um, what I really think should happen to these officers, they should have been fired. They should have been fired. Not suspended. Fired. And uh, I, I would say that if you want to continue to do this job and do it well, you make sure that they are under a microscope for a long damn time. And we need more people like you, sir. We need more people like you, sir, at the head of these departments holding oath-breaking officers accountable. Well done. I'm sure you've done as much as you can under the circumstances, but don't back off. Don't back off for an instant. And if they ever come for you, your head for doing your job, you let me know. And I have 150,000 people that can make an awful lot of noise in defense of the good officers. We certainly have no problem making noise about the bad ones, and we need to stand up on the side of the good ones, and you, sir, are one of them. Thank you for your service. Let's take another one. Uh, next, we have a question on anarchism, which is phrased differently, but it's really the same question over and over again. And, and the question answers itself, right? And those of you who are of anarchist mindset, you, you, when you hear the question in full, you'll go, there's the answer, right? So here we go. I don't always see eye to eye with you, uh, but I genuinely appreciate what you're doing. I believe I'd likely want someone like you having my back at the shit at the fan. Anyways, I'm a bit new to the theory of anarchism and still trying to get a good handle on what libertarians actually believe. I just started an older podcast of yours on anarchism. I won't have time to finish it up uh, for a bit, potentially to find the answers to this question, so I want to fire it off real quick while I'm thinking about it. If we completely dismantle the state, then what is to be done about mass polluters and other shady, inhumane practices on the globe, or just very wide, even local scale. I'm thinking like Enron, the 08 finance derivatives assholes, uh, offensive warring nations, big banks, big ag and pharma, and oppressive regimes that have no respect for women, still enslave or make wage slaves of humans, etc. You get my point. I'm not sure that I do. Do you get your point? Okay. I'm sure there's a simple answer to this. I just can't seem to wrap my head around it. Thanks. Keep up the good work, Jack. Be well, David. Okay, David. So this is a very common question. So I said it's the same question with a different paint job on it. And I'm not picking on you, but I just want you to think about what you just did. You laid out all of these horrible things that are going on right now, including things that are actively going on where the state exists. So the, the contention that, well, we'll see with the government, we can prevent these things is... Uh, 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 it's a fallacy because it's like saying, well, you know, we need we need tough drug laws to keep drugs out of our schools. Really? So are, do we have tough drug laws? Yeah. Are, are there drugs in our schools? Yeah. Okay, so tell me again how the tough drug laws are keeping the drugs out of our schools. No, what we keep drugs out of our schools is parents that were involved, teachers that were involved, and, and, and good education of our children. That would be, do more to keep drugs out of our schools than the law. Because right now there's a lot of money in selling drugs. And if some go to kids, the drug dealer doesn't care. And, and how are you going to tell people that you're going to keep drugs out of our schools when you can't keep drugs out of prison? I mean, really think about it, right? The maximum security prisons have drugs. Every single person that goes in and out is checked. You know, they, they're designed to keep people in and people out. Everything's completely scrutinized all the time, and there's drugs like crazy in our prison system. So th this belief that government will, will magically you know, prevent this, and what people say when you point that out, 
after that kind of hits them in the head, oh, yeah, huh, never thought of it that way, right? But it would be so much worse without the state. Well, again, let's, let's, let's think about how this works. The removal of the state is not the removal of accountability. It's not the removal of rules. And, and it's, it's really too deep of a thing to go into. And maybe I'll do another show before the year ends on anarchy. And we'll go to things like, well, how would we handle it if I broke into your house and stole something? You said I did it, and I said I didn't do it. How would that be handled in an anarchy? Would you just shoot me? Would I just shoot you first? No, it doesn't work. No, not at all. So if you're thinking that, you got a long way to go down that road. Now, here's the other thing. I am a pragmatist more than an anarchist, right? Pragmatist first, anarchist second, which means I, I believe in dealing in reality. And I believe society has to evolve into, not devolve into, right? Evolve into anarchy. It takes a disciplined, moral, just society of informed individuals for anarchy to work. It is the ultimate goal, all right? If you think about it, it's not a religion, but liking it to religion. Uh, religion is like, let's say, uh, Christian religions call upon its followers to obey all of God's laws, okay? And to not sin, to not break the law. And yet every single member of that society sins, breaks God's laws, breaks biblical law in their life multiple times. And even if you're 50 years old, and you're mature, and you really believe your faith, you know you're going to fail in the future again. You know you are. So do you say, well, screw this? Or do you say, that's the goal? And anything less of shooting for perfection is a failure. That's my, it's not that I'm going to succeed in never failing, right? But I'm always going to strive to succeed. And I'm always going to be remorseful when I fail, right? That's kind of how you have to look at anarchism. That our goal is the complete and total eradication of the state, which is a multi-layered, multi-generational approach. But let's back up to something that's a little more palatable for people. What do libertarians believe? Oh, that's interesting. Because see, this conflation of libertarianism and anarchism is, is a very confusing thing. And I've, I finally, after years of trying to dis dissect where's the line, came to this conclusion. All libertarians... Or all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists. And what I mean by that is that libertarian philosophy is, is anarchism, but libertarians will have exceptions. I've seen a meme that says something like, you become a libertarian when you realize it's wrong to steal people's property or coerce them in any way when they're not harming another person. Okay. And then the next line is, you become an anarchist when you realize there's no exceptions. So what the libertarian that's not an anarchist says is, well, we, is what you said, we have to have some protections here. We have to have some form of government. We have to have a minarchy, right? This little tiny, bitty, itty-bitty little government that just sees to the basic needs like, you know, criminal justice system. But there should be so few crimes that it's kind of really easy to do and what have you. And what the anarchist says is, you know what, that'd be great. If I could push a button and get us to there in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I'd push that button right now. If I could begin to dismantle the state and I knew that my actions would only take it to that libertarian minarchy, great. But we shouldn't stop there. We should keep dismantling it. And if we take something away and it's not working, we can put it back.
and figure out again and take it away. But it should always be the goal of going to zero. It's a philosophy, right? It's a philosophy. Because what the only way you could ever get to a minarchy is with a bunch of pragmatic anarchists in charge whose goal was no government. Anything less, because this is what happens, no matter how small a government is, it will use whatever power you give it to add another power and to give itself something else to do. And it will it will grow. It, governments are like bacteria. You have one bacteria. That's eh, not that big a deal. And, you know, a couple of minutes into it, it splits in half. They get two bacteria. It's not that big a deal. A couple of minutes later, it splits into four. And a couple of minutes later, into eight. And a couple of minutes later, into 16. Government grows just like that. It doubles its size every generation, at least. It, really, it doubles its size multiple times in a generation. And we've now gotten so big. So when you, when you ask questions like, how would we prevent X, and X is happening in spite of the fact that we have a state, the question doesn't be, how, how do we create a situation where it never happens? Only how can we do it better without the state than the state's doing it right now? So how could we, as a society, create systems that are independently run, that would do a better job of protecting the environment than the EPA. Notice I didn't say, how could we make sure nothing ever happens to the environment? Just how could we do better than the EPA? You don't think we could do better than the EPA? You know, how could we keep drugs away from our children? Okay, how could we do a better job than the state is currently doing keeping drugs away from our children? I mean, part of the drug problem is what? Do we treat it like a crime instead of a medical illness? We have a drug addict and we throw them in jail. Drug addicts should never go to jail. Drug users should never... I don't care what drug it is. Even if it's going to be illegal to use drugs, they should never go to jail for it. They should go to treatment for it. That's the only thing we should ever do for possession, use, etc. I mean, it's just it's, it's retarded that we, we send somebody to prison because they're an addict. Well... He was told not to use crack anymore, and the next day he was out using crack again, so he's going to jail. Idiot. He's an addict. He doesn't have a choice. Oh, we all have choices. That's. I'm sorry you don't understand what the word addiction is. I'm sorry you don't get it. Well, if he had enough willpower, he wouldn't have become an addict in the first place, moron. Right? People that are in these situations, you know, desperately need treatment. I've seen documentaries on people trying to get into treatment for heroin addiction. And, and, and taking so long to get a, 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 into a treatment center that they end up dead before they get in. So, do you think we could do better as a stateless society or as a minarchy than that? If all of the resources being used to incarcerate these drug users were instead used to provide treatment and rehabilitation for those that wanted it, and a safe place for those that are going to use it anyway so that they're not causing harm to us, And if somebody can figure out a way to make that, you know, self-sustaining from an economic standpoint, we're already better than the state at that one impossible thing. We have less people in prison. We have more people recovering. We have people that have a problem willing to come out. Pollution? Pfft. Who wants the earth polluted? You know, we've been so divided by the dichotomy that people really think Republicans just want the earth turned into a lump of coal, destroyed. They want every tree burned down. I mean, really, that's what you think because they don't believe in a carbon tax? 
Do you think a carbon tax would actually fix any of our problems? What if we pulled the, the, the lid of regulations off of companies so they could build all this new technology? What if we made it more feasible for people to be able to, to come up with new ways to produce energy? What if you didn't need a team of lawyers to start a company of any significant size? You know? What if, what if people weren't passing laws to charge people who are putting solar on their roof to be connected to the grid because, well, there's another revenue source, right? We don't want to buy their power. We want to charge them for taking their power away if they make it in surplus. How is that helping the environment? See, you could just pull apart this, 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 the bullshit story. The government prevents and fixes all this stuff. It doesn't. Now, it does to a degree. But what we're saying as an anarchist is we could build private systems that do a better job. No one's promising perfection except status. See, what the Republicans tell you, if we were just in charge of everything, we could make it perfect. Democrats tell you the same thing. The socialists tell you, the communists. Everybody says if we had total control, we could create this utopia. The anarchist says there's no utopia. Not going to happen. Never going to happen. All we should be doing is striving to be better every day. A little better every day. A little better every day. But I want you think about this. If I start you on the 50-yard line of a football field and say, Keep going halfway to the, the goal line. You'll never get to the goal line. But you'll get damn close. But you'll never get there. Because the one yard to go to the half yard, the half yard to go to one and a half feet, you go down to millimeters. But if you only ever move halfway, you never get to the end. That's life. That's reality. You never get to perfection. But you get damn close if your goal is simply to continuously improve. Government does not continuously improve. Every major improvement in government has been when people have wrested control from government. The United States was wresting control from a monarchy to a republic. And it was an improvement. But because the goal wasn't to continue to make government even smaller, but to let it grow as it saw fit, that republic has turned into one of the most god-awful bureaucracies, one of the most corrupt systems in the world. And why? Because it started out as one of the freest. And this is the difference between the minarchist and the anarchist. The minarchist says we can just get to that minimal government and doesn't realize unless you're still trying to trim it down to nothing, it will grow into a beast. And the smaller you cut it, the bigger the beast it will become as it rebuilds. Because as the people prosper and the government taxes, it will have an awful lot of prosperity to tax. And that will give it the ability to grow to justify itself, and to keep coming up with new solutions to problems no one asked it to solve in the first place, and you got to pray back where we are. I hope that makes sense. I really do. Let's take another one. So get this one. Um, this is in the New York Post. It comes to me from Ginn. He says, we apparently have so much money we can pay people full pay for no work. Hey, Jack, still love the show. Keep up the great work. So... <clears throat> I'm going to give you the short version of this because this is a, a rather long article. If you look the article up, and it's in the show notes today, you'll see a teacher kind of like in a library area in a chair uh, with a pillow up against one of the bookshelves sleeping, just knocked out of sleep. And the story is he was fired as a teacher after he made news as an Occupy Wall Street protester who clashed with cops. Okay? So... 
he was in Occupy movement probably on summer break, right? Uh-uh. You know, and uh, he got in a clash with officers one way or another. He appealed this filing in court and won, had to pay a seven thousand dollar fine. But they said the school district cannot fire him for this. It has nothing to do with him being a teacher. You know, he wasn't out there with like a shirt on that says "I'm a teacher for the school district" or something representing them. He was off on his own time, and it was this protesting thing, right? So instead of returning him to his job, they banished him to something called the ATR which is basically like a reserve. And what this is like, these are for like, like whenever they need a substitute or someone like in reserve. But the guy's making, um, you know, this huge salary. He's making what, what is it? $94,000 a year to sit in a room and do nothing. And it's because the school will never hire you back if you're fired like this. And they won't send him to another school. But since he's in a union, They can't get rid of him because the court said, well, you can't fire him for that because it doesn't pertain to his job. So he has his job, you know, until he retires, making all this money to sit around and do nothing. And apparently this this ATR is full of teachers like this that have been dismissed, but yet we're able to prove in court one way or another that the, that the school was wrong in dismissing them. And I'm sure there's some in there that really should have been fired, and it's our bureaucracy, the lovely state again, solving problems no one asked them to, um, keeping a teacher who should be fired from being fired. But I also assume there's people like this guy in here that, you know, with some kind of an opinion of this, the principal, I don't want you here anymore or whatever. B- but tell me again how teachers are underpaid. This guy makes $94,000 a year. $94,000 a year, he doesn't even do any work. Now, what's the solution to this? Well... Get the state out of education. That's my solution. That's my solution to everything, right? So inside our pragmatic solution here is, well, um, if you have to give this man a job, send him to a different school because you have a district. You don't have one school. Send him somewhere else. Give him another job within a district. Or tell the principal who fired him, listen, bitch, we're sorry. Court said you're wrong. Give the man his job back. And let him do his job. It's not like this guy's a pedophile or something that shouldn't be trusted with children. He's a guy that went out and did a protest. And, you know, when they say clash with law enforcement, I, I got to tell you, when I hear a protester clash with law enforcement, I know there's probably half of those cases where the protester was an asshole, but the other half of those cases the law enforcement officer was an asshole. But the law enforcement officer has a badge and a gun and a taser and a whole bunch of other people with badges and guns and tasers and uniforms that could say, oh, no, this guy was, you know, we were just there making sure everything was okay, and he started to resist. What was he resisting? He was resisting, resisting, you know. Love that when you see a cop grab a guy and put him to the ground and start saying, stop resisting, stop resisting. guy's not doing anything. And then they charge him with resisting arrest, Right. And they said, well, what was the original charge? Well, we dropped it. Well, what was it? They'll have one. No charge. How can you resist arrest if you weren't charged? What were you, what were you being arrested for? What were you arresting him for? Well, I was detaining him. For what? For being there. Was that a crime? Well, no, but trumped-up bullshit. So I don't know if this guy actually, you know, was like some guy that started throwing Molotov cocktails at somebody, or if it was just a guy protesting who was, you know... Uh, Sprayed in the face with mace for sitting on his ass, like that one video we've all seen where the line of protesters just sitting there doing nothing, and a cop just walks by and just sprays them all, you know? 
We don't know what that is. But I do know whatever it was, it doesn't look like this guy was, you know, any, any reason to prevent him from doing his job. And there's one little tidbit in this, uh, in this article that I want to dig out for you is what this costs. Sucre 48, that's the teacher, complains he is warehoused in the absent teacher reserve, a pool of educators without permanent jobs that costs an estimated $100 million a year. Right now, there are 1,304 mothballed City Department of Education staffers in the ATR. This is, uh, I mean, do, do you really think about this? This isn't nationwide, this $100 million. This is, um, in this, this is basically just New York City. New York City. And this guy, you know, he spent 15 years as a, like a, a, a teacher, kind of a special education teacher, helping at-risk teens in the Bronx earn a general equivalency diploma, also known as a GED. This wasn't just a teacher that came to work every day and stood in front of a classroom and went through the same lesson that he's done for 15 years over and over and over again. This wasn't a guy that pushed play on automatic uh, teaching programs like they have in schools now where the, the program and the screen teaches the kids and the teachers there. This guy was a guy that was hands-on working with kids that had fallen through the cracks and helping them get their general equivalency diplomas. This guy's the kind of teacher you want teaching. Because the school doesn't like that he was in a protest, he's fired, but he's not fired, so he's costing taxpayers a hundred grand a year. And he's costing more than a hundred grand. He's a 94K, yeah, okay. You know, teachers get, you know, uh, your health insurance and all that stuff. A, a teacher being paid 94,000, just putting my business hat on and going through matching SSI, or seven grand, health insurance that these teachers get is like, like 20 grand a year. Even if they're paying some of it, it's still out of pocket from the employer side, about 15 to 20 grand. Uh, you got your, your burden labor rate against the whole thing. Uh, you got, you, you got unemployment, compensation insurance, all that shit. He's costing $140,000, $150,000. When you, you look at an employee making around $100,000 multiplied by $1.5 to the actual cost of that, that, that person. When I was employing people, I had people that worked for me that made more than this. And it was about a 1.3 multiplier. So a 30% more than I paid you is what you cost me. So it's, it's got to be higher than that in public education and government job because they get so much more stuff than you do in the private sector. So call it 1.5. So he's costing taxpayers $145,000, $150,000 a year. And it's pathetic. You look at this guy, and I don't blame him. He sacked out. You should pull the article and look at it. He's like in a little nook and cranny back in the the uh, the library, and he's got. It looks like actually, it looks like an army poncho liner rolled up as a pillow, and he's just sacked out in a chair. Now I'm going to tell you what I would do if I were him. I'd say that's fine. I would start a business of some sort, or I would start a self education program. I would develop. I would. Say, that's great. I'll sit here. And I'll bring my laptop in. And I mean, I would be doing something for myself. I, I'd say to hell with you people. And that's why this guy maybe is a better man than I am. Seriously. Because he wants to help kids. Because he wants to do his job. You know what? If you're a teacher and you take that role, helping kids get their GED, 
that means you want to teach. Because there's a lot of easier things you can do than that. But there's your government at work. Without government, you know, how would we pay teachers a $100,000 a year to sleep in a, in a chair? <sighs> kind of fits right in with that last question, doesn't it, when you think about it? Like, do you really believe government's solving these problems? Again, read the article for yourself. Take a look at the picture. It's worth a thousand words. So uh, I have this one from Richard, but I actually got this from a lot of people, and it's been all over Facebook and other social media platforms. Elon Musk, the guy that uh, brought us PayPal and sold it for uh, $130 million or something like that and uh, has now brought us Tesla and uh, SpaceX, uh, is just in a recent interview and said, robots will take your jobs and government will have to pay your wage. And there's a, a video segment here that I'll play for you uh, so you can actually hear Elon, Elon and uh, some other commentators discuss this, and I'll come back with my thoughts on it. Yes, we, we end up with a universal basic income or something like that due to automation. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what else one would do. This, um, but that's kind of I think what, what, what would happen. Um, and, you know, people have time to do other things and have more comp complex things, more interesting things, uh, certainly more leisure time. Um, and then we've got to figure out how how we integrate with. Uh, a world in the future with advanced AI. I think that's, that's going to be one of the, the toughest, uh, maybe the technology revolution that's taken place today is sort of like the industrial revolution that took place 200 years ago. And that's when the Luddites were smashing the sewing factories in London. And the same thing happens now. But Tesla, what Tesla does, what Elon does, is he tells people, hey, listen, you show me how we can do your job better, I'll get a different job for you. I'll get a better job for you. I'll get a more interesting job for you. So people at Tesla are really delighted working at Tesla. People working other places, they, as soon as they can eliminate them, they eliminate them. All right. I'll give you one last word on that, Elon, if you have a thought, and then we'll wrap it up. Well, <clears throat> I, I, I do have a thought, but it, it would take too long to, to convey uh, in this, in this uh, interview. Um, but, but ultimately, I think there would need to be some kind of improved symbiosis with uh, digital superintelligence. Um, but, but that's that, 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 that's a that's a pretty involved discussion. So um, <laughs> that's hard to do on daytime uh, business news. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here before I talk about this that I, I shouldn't have to say, but but I always end up with people coming at me if I don't, and I'll get it anyway, because people won't listen to what I'm going to say right now, but I'm going to try anyway, so at least I know that I did. I'm not saying we should do this. I'm saying this is the direction that society is headed. So when I say something like, well, gee, the, uh, the, the, the amount of money we're going to be spending on the national debt uh, debt's interest is going to exceed uh, every other department of, of government except for Social Security and, and Department of Defense in another year. Uh, no one says, well, Jack, you're saying we should spend that much money on, you know, you understand, I'm just talking about what's happening. Whether it's good or bad it, it is irrelevant to the discussion of whether or not it's coming. And I think this kind of, some kind of universal basic income is something that is coming. And it would, it, it would do well for government to do it because then they, if you had 80% of the population that were living off their UBI, uh, a significant portion of it anyway. In other words, like, well, maybe they do have other income and what have you, but if you took away their UBI, they'd be in the poorhouse. 
well, now we really need government. So I, I think it can definitely be something that empowers government. If government does it, you can you can bet that it that it will be, and it looks like government will be what does it. Um, there is the potential right now before government does it for someone to skin how to do it with virtual nations where people are citizens of virtual nations and some sort of uh, blockchain type currency is distributed to its citizenry uh, based on what that nation does or I mean I don't know how to do it yet there, that, like, like that's another option but but I I think what's interesting is and I don't know who the other guy was talking there but he he kind of snaps in and says well the difference here is when uh, Tesla you know has automation come in and it displaces a worker then then Elon's like okay we'll find another more exciting job for you to do <clears throat> but even with a company like Tesla and I, I do believe that Musk really does try to take care of his employees you you eventually automate yourself out of new spaces for people to go to you know I mean there's Again, this is something I think people understand with this automation thing. It's not all jobs going away. It's the number of jobs being drastically reduced without being replaced at the number that they're reduced by. So let's say over the next 20 years, for every 10 jobs replaced by automation, that creates three new jobs. So there's a lot of jobs being created, but we're losing seven more. We're at a net loss of seven for every ten. And that's that's catastrophic. I'm going to tell you something that a lot of people don't really get. If we only created eight for every ten we lost, it's catastrophic. You're talking about a 20% drop in jobs available. Year after year after year after year for the next two decades. What does that look like? What does that look like 20 years from now? What does it look like 10 years from now? So here's the conundrum. Elon put it best. I don't know what else one would do. We haven't really thought about that yet, have we? See, that's what I'm saying about this whole issue with automation. And the reason I keep bringing it up, as a nation, as a people, we need to have this discussion. We need to start planning for what to do now because by the time everybody realizes it and admits it, we're going to say, well, there's nothing else we can do. We have to do this. And there may be a lot of other things that we can do. I, I believe in many ways we're moving toward um, a sharing economy. And I think a lot of people when they hear sharing economy, they think of it like, okay, well, we'll collectively share this Uber-like vehicle, so we both, you know, like three families basically are using one car instead of three families using six cars because you don't use your car all the time. And even though the two families might both need the car at the same time, it comes out to a net of one car to three families because of all the efficiencies and leaning out and ride-sharing and everything, and they, the sharing economy is that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, I'm still dealing with this cold. Yeah, but... I think it's more than that. And what I mean is that, like, if you look at Steemit, right, this new social media platform where people put out a story and then people give them Steam, which is like a, a Bitcoin-like currency. And the people that bring up the most interesting and informative articles get the most Steam, therefore the most money in return for what they're doing. So maybe a tithing economy is a better way to think of it. Where if we get to a point where people have reasonable security with some level of currency, no matter how they obtain it, as long as it's not, you know, not immoral, then you get to a situation where when somebody 
provides you with good information, maybe you pay them a little bit of money. How much between you and them? Does everybody do it? Probably not. Some people are greedy. Some people are generous. But but we might have more of an economy like that, like the people that actually are the most helpful to others become the wealthiest. And that's what capitalism strives to be. The person that figures out how to put a car in every driveway instead of just the driveway of the rich becomes wealthy. But what if we made that scalable? Down to the guy, you know, the guy that shovels people snow so they don't have to benefits from it. People won't do that, Jake. People do it right now for no money at all. When I lived in Pennsylvania, there was this guy, he was a retired truck driver. So he had that, you know, had that guaranteed income coming in, right? So he had his, he had he had driven not as an independent, he had driven for a company for for 40 years, I think. 30 years, 30 years. And so he had a pension and he had his own savings. They had paid off their house, they'd done all the remodeling, and he came home and he got his toys that he always wanted. He got his four-wheeler, you know. He got his nice loaded pickup truck, he put it in a great big garage. So he had his little workshop. He put a pool in, had the whole neighborhood. There was like 13 houses, but he had like everybody over for a pool party. And he bought himself a great big ass like tractor with a snowblower and all that stuff. And one day it snows and it snows and it snows. And I had this huge long driveway. I'm talking it was like, I bet it was 60 yards. And then a big parking lot at the end of it. And I had a basketball um, court for my son on it, all black topped. And, uh, I mean, this is like 11, 12 inches of like that heavy wet snow. Like sometimes you get 11 inches of dry snow, you pick it up with a shovel and just like, like fluff. This is the stuff you just see it coming down. You're like, oh, that's going to be a bitch. And I'm thinking, ugh, I'll wait till it stops and I'll get out there and shovel the cars out and everything. I have breakfast and I hear some noise outside, but I really don't pay attention. I go outside. Everything's opened up. And he's just leaving. I'm like, yo, what are, you, what are you doing? He goes, ah, don't worry. I was like, let me give you some money. He goes, no, I don't, I don't want anything. And he, he went and he did every 13 houses in the neighborhood. He snowblowed every driveway there because he had something that everybody else didn't. And he just thought it was a nice thing to do. Well, this created social capital, right? So maybe we start moving toward where these other forms of capital I've talked about, the eight forms of capital from Ethan Rowland, right? Social capital, experiential capital, etc. May we move toward an economy where those things become monetizable? How? I don't know. I mean, I don't have all the answers. I'm not freaking Yoda. Some of you seem to think that way. But my point is there's always ways to do things like that. And if we don't provide the solution, you're going to be back to what Elon said. I don't know what else one would do. And then you end up with something where everybody's on the government tip. Every single person. And some of you think that would be a disaster. I do as well to a degree, but I don't think it's a disaster you think it was. People say, well, then nobody would do nothing. Everybody would sit around. Listen, let's say they did a UBI of $2,500 a month. You can live on $2,500 a month. It's not a great income, but plenty of people work for less right now and, and get by. That's thirty grand a year. If I gave you that, would you just quit seeking any other forms of income? Would you retire on 30 grand a year right now, if I, I gave you that for life, $2,500 a month, you probably wouldn't turn it down. And you might quit your job. You might say, you know what? Those assholes down there at that plant or whatever have treated me like shit for seven years. I hate it. It's crushing my soul. I don't have to do it anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do yet next. But what I'm going to do first, since I know this is genuine, I have this money, so I'm going to quit. You might do that. But how many of you would do nothing then? 
How many of you would buy your little homestead somewhere and just sit out there and tend your chickens for the rest of your life and never do anything entrepreneurial? And, and the answer is very few of you would for that amount of money. If I gave you $100,000 a year, many of you would just tune out, right, altogether. But that kind of money, $25,000, $30,000 a year, you're going to want more than that will give you. But you'll be able to do less to get what you want. If you need $50,000 a year and you're getting $25,000 for existing, then you only have to make $25,000. And you can find a lot more pleasing ways to do that. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a disaster, but I think if government does it in the end, of course, it'll be as greater control of the population. And unfortunately, guys, that's where I think we're headed. And it probably won't be that much. It'll probably be quite a bit less. And they'll make you pay for your own health insurance out of it, and there'll be almost nothing left of it by the time it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to be the panacea a bunch of the people on the left think it's going to be. But it would be interesting to figure out, could we create a society where, as a being, As a fellow human, like we just say, there's enough for everybody to have at least X, right? At least, you know, a roof over your head, food for your belly, basic services and care. Everybody should have that unless there's some kind of vagrant piece of crap that doesn't deserve it, right? Unless, until proven otherwise, as a human being, you qualify for at least this much, however you figure out how to do it. And then we stop punishing people who do better. And say, but if you want Y or Z or all the way back to double A, you can have it and nobody will get in your way. I think it'd be a great society. I'm not waiting for it though. Um, I think we should all be trying to build our own little piece of this and creating our own solutions. So I think we're heading for catastrophic systematic failure on so many levels. Education system is going to fall on its ass and fail. It is. The education bubble is going to pop. It'll be the most gargantuan pop in the history of the world financially. The real estate stuff is being built right back up into another bubble like we learned nothing. Um, automation is taking job after job after job, and they're not being replaced at the rate that they're being taken away. Um, if you're not working on something for yourself right now, you're going to be adrift in a river. And to be honest, that's okay. Because some people adrift in a river do very well. But some people end up down a rapid over a waterfall, smashed into a bank, drowned underneath an, uh, an eddy or an undertow, and you're not going to know which one you're going to be until you get to that point. So I'd recommend having some plan, some life preserver in your life. Next one here today comes from Garrett in Oregon. He says, <clears throat> I'm a 21-year-old diesel mechanic working for a large company uh, out of a service truck. I plan over five years to slowly launch my own company as a mobile mechanic. I'm already spending putting my name around and doing jobs on the weekend, although I don't know if I plan to stay in the areas. There's not much room for growth. Question one, any tips on how to switch from employee to working for myself without having to lose my, lose my full income? Any thoughts on ways to switch over slowly using YouTube to grow my company name? Question two, marketing. Any thoughts on marketing myself as a, and my company as a mechanic? Or is a business selling a service? A lot of your stuff on a business has a sell of product and not necessarily sell of service. Just hoping to get some thoughts on that, how they correlate and how they're different. I've been listening to your show for about a year and maybe I've missed an episode on this. Okay, so first of all, when it comes to marketing, there's no difference in marketing a service or a product. There, there really isn't. You're selling to a need or a want. That's it. And it doesn't matter if that, that need is... I need my truck to run, so I need somebody to come fix it for me. Or I need my truck to run, so I need to buy the part and put it in myself. 
you as a marketer are marketing the solution. But what I hear is that I want, I want my, my cake and I want to eat it too. You know, I, I want I want to keep my full-time income uh, and I want to build a, a business on the side. But what issue I have here is you're kind of building a direct competitor. Right? It's not like, okay, I work for this company that does service X and I want to do service Y. It's like they do service X, I want to do service X. I'm spreading my name around while I'm doing So on, on some levels, if I'm your employer and I catch you doing this, you're fired. And I don't mean that like is like that's what's likely to happen. I mean if I was running a company and I had diesel mechanics that I was paying good money and benefits to, providing a truck, providing them with work, sending them around to take care of my customers that I market to, and I felt in any way that what they're trying to do is basically snipe my customers out from underneath me, carve out a piece of the market that I built, I would fire them. I mean that personally. I would fire you if you worked for me and I caught you doing that. I'm not saying you're bad for doing it. I'm not saying you're wrong for doing it. I'm saying I would be like, I don't want that person working for me. That's a risk to my business. In, in the interest of preserving my business and preserving the work of all the other loyal employees I have, this guy's got to go. Now, maybe you're being very careful not to have that conflict of interest. You're getting work from people that are not connected to that company. Fine. As an employer, I can't take that risk. I'd still fire you. So my advice there is not stop doing it. You're wrong. Just be very damn careful. Spreading your name around is a funny way of working its way back to your home. The old saying, don't crap in your own backyard. So that's just like a little heads up for you there. As far as how to, you know, how do you do it slowly? Well, what you're doing is how you do it slowly. But this is the reality. It, one of the guys I really like in mainstream media is Steve Harvey. And he calls it jump, right? There's a point in your life where you have to jump. You, you, you can only have it safe and secure and try to risk to get more together for so long. And at some point, you have to reach a point where you say, I'm going all in. And then there's no guarantee when you go all in that you're going to win that hand. So there's a couple different ways to do this. One would be you lean out your expenses. You're 21 years old. If you have a lot of expenses, pfft, cut them. You don't need them. You start saving money. You save like crazy. <clears throat> you save 25, 30% of your paycheck, right, for a couple years. And then... When you have all that money sitting there, you can decide if you're really serious about this or not. Because that would give you the ability to pay yourself a wage that you've been living on for up to six months. And, and, and completely fail for six months and still have enough money to live on. And if you can't make a go of it in six months going full time, you're probably in the wrong business. I, I think what you really have to do, though, is ask yourself, why, why do you want a business that is the job that you currently have? Do you love what you're doing? Or do you, do you just see that as, well, that's what I know how to do? That's what I know how to do. So it's logical that I would, I would do what I know how to do. Is there a way that you can create a, 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 something in your industry that's better than what you do now? That's better than driving around a truck and doing service and, and maintenance work? Is there something you can innovate? When it comes to, like, since you're 21, You have such an amazing opportunity right now in this place in the world to be, instead of just 
a copier to be an innovator, to be a disruptor. In other words, how could, if, if your boss said, you could have the company, I'm going to make you CEO, you could take it in any direction you want to, would you just run it the way that it is? And if your answer is yes, then you need to work on yourself. If your answer is, I don't know, you are a very smart man. Because you probably don't have the answer to that yet. But, but if you answer, I don't know, but I would take some real effort to figure out how to do something completely innovative. Then, then you're on the right track. I, I mean, I would recommend for someone like you, you need to go out and just get a basic, fundamental business acumen. Like, go out and get the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and read it. Read it twice. It's not the greatest book in the world, but it's the greatest book in the world at getting people into the business mindset, right? There's, there's a lot of easier ways to making a living in the diesel industry than driving around changing out starter motors and adjusting fuel pumps, you know? There, there's a lot of opportunity there. It's very expensive equipment. The people that use it have money. And I don't know the answer to these questions, but, you know, what could you do differently? What could you do better? These are the things, if you want to be anything other than, a, than a, basically going from being a W-2 to a 1099. Because right now, that's all that it sounds like. And I'm not putting you down. And if that's what it takes to get you started, go for it. It's okay. I'm just trying to say, think a little bit bigger. Think a little bit broader. Think a little bit more like an Elon Musk. But if you want to know how you keep a full-time income and build a second business, there, there's only two ways to do it. There's only two ways to do it. One is you save up the money so that you have a bankroll salary, and then you jump. And the other is you just work and work and work and work and do nothing but work. You work two full-time jobs. When you get off work, you go back to work. When I was coming up in the telecom industry, they were both jobs. One was employment and one was contracting. And that led me to a partnership that actually was one of the first companies I co-founded. And it worked like this. I worked until 4.30. 4.30, I got off work. I didn't go home. I drove straight to this other job, and I would get there around 5 o'clock, and I would work from 5 o'clock till about 10 o'clock every night during the week. And I would usually work full days on Saturday. And sometimes I'd work a half-day Sunday. Sucks. You know? You put in 80 hours a week. And you're making no overtime? It sucks. But you're bankrolling it at that point. All of that second job is money you don't need. You're just packing it away. And when the opportunity comes to jump, you jump. Now, if you're doing it for yourself, well, hmm, here's an interesting idea. Yeah, I would imagine a company like yours like is an 8-to-5 job or something like that. Well, there's a lot of hours after 5. Maybe there's people that need service at off hours. Maybe you specialize in that. Then I won't have any free time. I don't, that's, that's, you know, if you want a job and a business, that's the way it works. Those are the only two ways. I do recommend, you know, going to jackspearco.com and listening to my business podcast and starting from the very beginning. That site got messed up a little bit, but all the podcasts are still there. You can still listen to them all. Um, I recommend that to anybody. I'm not ever really going to work on that site again. I put out so much and I don't think anybody's ever used 80% of it. Until somebody shows me they've used 100% of it, there it is. Use the information I've provided for free. So this is a cool email here. Um, 
It says, uh, hi, Jack, just the previous email, just repeat of the previous email, new subject since the first one did not follow for Jack model. Best regards, Brad. Uh, like you, I find synchronicity in life interesting, worth paying extra attention to. I struck up a conversation with a guy at work who had an I voted sticker. I knew he was not a mainstream kind of guy, so I was curious as we got to talking about challenges in society. I thought I would share your podcast with him. The episode I mentioned was episode 1885, Join the Quiet Insurrection. He responded with the poem in the thread below. I hope you enjoy the poem. This guy calls himself Oathwalker. And here's what it's called. It's called The Quiet War. And I wish my voice was better for reading this today, but I'll do my best. They call it The Quiet War because you've never heard of it. Quietly, silently, they've shaped your mind, formed your values, constructed your reality. In order to push you off like tiny toy sailboats, ambassadors for their sardonic agenda, of peace that was never their intention, of greed masked in words of freedom, and coercion couched in terms of righteousness. And you do this because you were never given a firm foundation in truthfulness. And you do it because the only tradition you've ever learned is one of blame and judgment. And you do it because their power seems incontrovertible. There is more product than person in you. But there is a place in your heart they cannot reach. There is a place in your heart that is yours alone. Somewhere inside you have always known this. And while they can cajole, encourage, and misinform you to make unsustainable choices, somewhere inside you know that the choice is yours and yours alone. No one can take this from you. No one. You can choose something else. You can choose joy. You can choose gratitude. You can choose to align yourself with a power that is greater than all of their machinations, depressions, and manipulations. Divine power. The one that birthed the sun. The one that created the planet, the galaxies, and the grand expanses of the spatial universe. A quiet war demands a quiet revolution. Choose something new today. Choose joy. Choose quietly in your heart of hearts, and you will become a revolutionary. Just you. Quietly revolt. Oathwalker. Badass. That is what I've been trying to say for so long, guys. That all of this shit that goes on in the world around you that you're concerned about, that you can't control, that is how you are controlled. You are controlled by that which you have no control over, yet you are concerned about. But there's a piece of you. There's a part of you they can never get to. And the way you harness the power of that part is to shut off an attachment to all the things that you care about but can't do anything about. And instead, focus with passion all the things that you care about that you can do something about. That's the quiet insurrection. Hope you join us. Great poem. And uh, Brad, let Oathwalker know that I uh, put this on today's show. Hope he, uh, hope he likes hearing his poem read, even with a hoarse voice. Next question is, hi, Jack. Uh, I keep pigeons on my property. I'm starting to notice that I've been invaded by chipmunks and mice. I'm worried that they're getting into my pigeon feeders and going to get my birds sick. I see that you just got two cats to help with rodent pro problem. I've never had a cat before. I was hoping you could advise me a bit on how to care for a kitten, how to make sure it doesn't run away, scratch up furniture, 
uh, and do, uh, do what to do with it when I'm at work, etc. What type of cat to get. My wife is nervous about getting a cat, so anything you can say to talk her into it would be helpful. Thanks, Dave. Well, Dave, I'm not here to talk your wife into anything, bro. You got to do that for yourself. But I'll give you some answers. Okay, number one, if you're going to have a cat whose job is rodent patrol on the homestead, I actually suggest two cats, not one. Person that's already hesitant for one, I can understand where two would be uh, a bigger problem, but here's why. Cats have unique personalities, and when you have two of them, they'll tend to do a better job on controlling rodents than one because one will be lazy this week, the other one will be on the hunt. One will be passive, one will be aggressive. And I, I think the best plan with that is kittens of about the same age, and the best thing is litter mates. And they go as fast as, you know, medically safe as possible to be spayed and neutered, so you don't have more cats than you want. And these are outside cats. A cat can't kill a chipmunk. It can't eat a mouse. It can't find a nest of baby mices and eat them up if it's laying on your couch. So they have to be outside animals. So then the next question is, do you live in a place with enough land where that's responsible. Because there's some places where your outside cat is somebody else's nightmare. And I don't advocate that at all. In my instance, we have three acres. We have now three dogs, and one dog is learning right now how not to bother the cats. And she's learning it through a combination of cat claws and mild electric shocks to the neck with a shock collar. Um, and she's a challenge. But the other two dogs and the cats love each other. My dog goes out in the morning. The, the, the Dana, the girl cat, who's like the aggressive cat. This cat is a hunter, and she already has chased this new dog. Uh, you know, she, the new dog chases the big tom cat. He runs away. The little gray cat goes after her, and she runs from the, the little gray cat. This little gray cat is like freaking razor blades, you know, walking razor blades. And that's what I'm saying, too. So they've worked out. That this fence, while they can get over it, that there's other things out there that want to hurt them. And this is a big enough area, and that these giant dogs are their defenders and protectors. And cats are territorial. And they know no other cat is coming inside this fence without getting the chomp. So now they're like, yeah. You know, and Fox walks around the fence and pees on it and, and whatever like males do. Like, this is my territory. Like, he's a badass. And really, he knows he's a badass backed up by 200 pounds of, you know, 250 pounds of canine. And, and, and that works out. So our area, I knew that's what would happen. It's for how you keep them from running away. Cats don't want to run away. In fact, if you'll notice, whenever you, like, are on Nextdoor or any kind of online message board or see anything advertised, the cat that runs away... It's always an inside cat. It's never allowed outside. When it gets outside, it's like, holy shit, freedom, and it just takes off. And it's confused and it runs away. Cats that are outside cats seldom run away. Now, sometimes bad things happen. They get killed by a snake. They get run over by a car. That's a risk. And that's why having enough space for them to have a, enough area of operation to feel good about it is better than a suburb. Because in a suburb, they're going to roam. They're just going to. Okay? So you got to make that decision for yourself. So what we want to do, we bring our kittens home. We give them lots of love. We teach them that people are a source of food and love and attention, and people do not do them harm, at least the people that live there. And we put them in an outbuilding. So we want to do this at a time of year where it's not 150 degrees. 
right? So we can keep the doors closed. And for at least a week, more like two, they never go outside. This is a big thing. This is why you want them to be kittens for a homestead cat. Because they don't really want to go very far yet. And then we open up the door. And hopefully they don't run away. And it's always a possibility. But by that point, they're home. You keep pigeons. You know how pigeons work. You lock a pigeon in a coop. Don't let it out for like three weeks. You open the thing. It flies away. It comes right back. It lives there now. That's where its food is. It's, it's homed. Cats do the same thing. This is my home. I live here now. And they start exploring the world as kittens do. You provide them their food and their water in that outbuilding. You've litter trained them in that outbuilding. At this point, once they're always given access to the outside, as they start using the bathroom outside, you can take away the litter pan. If you want to leave the litter pan in there, fine, but now you're going to have to clean litter, and why do that if you don't have to? And then you have to train them to not harm things that are on your, on your property that you don't want them to harm. So if you have chickens and stuff like that, if they're kittens and they're too little to do harm, and again, like fall's a great time to do this. Now's a great time to do this because you don't have babies. You just have the adults. The kitten grows up next to the chickens. By the time it's a cat, oh, that's a chicken. It lives here. And when they do anything that's aggressive toward the animals, garden host prayer. And you don't yell at them, and you don't say no, and you do everything you can to not make them realize you did it. When it bothers the, the duck, it gets the hose. That's how I train my cats. And I've got videos on YouTube of my cats walking past baby ducks and baby geese. Why? Because... When I bother this creature that's been here all the time, that I know I'm not supposed to bother anyway, water comes out of nowhere and splashes me. And if we could safely make a shot collar for a cat and we really can't, I would use that instead. It'd be much more effective. But the hose works. Just, shh, cats hate water. Gee, I don't do that. I don't get sprayed. I do that, I get sprayed. The, the feline mind works this out and stops attacking baby birds and stuff. So then it understands, like, this is part of my group. And then you just let it do its job. Do people that say, well, don't feed them very well, you know, make them hungry. No, 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 no. Because that's when they are going to eat your baby chickens and shit like that because they got that, that, that predator urge because of hunger where a cat is a predator that will predate because it's hungry and it will predate because it likes to predate. It enjoys the sport of hunting. And it will hear little rodents squeaking in a nest, and it will go in there and it will eat the whole nest and disrupt the breeding cycle. Just like chickens eating fallen fruit, disrupting a fruit fly breeding cycle. It is not a perfect solution. It will not solve all your problems. But that's how you do it if you want to do it. Now, my thought is, I think that cats are really outside creatures. I know that, you know, PETA and everybody, oh, we got to bring the kitties inside. I mean, as an animal, a cat is designed to live outside. It is a predator. Well, predators don't live in houses. They live in the woods. I think cats are happier outside. And there's plenty of cats that need homes. This is, how, this is how I found my cats, and it's kind of how I would recommend you do yours. I went on next door and said, I'm looking for two cats, preferably litter mates, that are three months or younger so that I can train them to live on my farm. They're going to be outside cats. I'm saying this with full disclosure. And yes, I got haters. Oh, I can't believe you. Shut up. I'm not asking for, for you, okay? You don't have to give me a cat. And it was like immediately this lady, there's two cats, kittens that are litter mates, deliver under a trailer. This lady that I, I helped through Meals on Wheels, and they're going to die because she's going to be gone in a week. And the mother cat's there too, and all, I can't take the mother. I, I, I can't train this mother cat. But those were cats that needed a home. 
And there's plenty of cats that need homes. So what kind of cat? A cat. Random American short-haired cat. You know, there's tons of them out there. You can go on Craigslist. People are giving them away all the time. But get them their shots, get them spayed, and by God, feline leukemia vaccine. I have lost cats when I was a kid to feline leukemia because it was a thing that wasn't really well known and understood. It is a horrible, emaciating death. You're going to have outside cats, feline leukemia vaccine, along with all the other vaccinations that your animals should have. But, okay, pigeons. If you have pigeons, wherever they're inside of, their coop and their fly, you should make it as mouse-proof as possible. So this is like the other side of it. It's more important than that. So like when you have like your, your hardware cloth or whatever, you need to be digging down six to eight inches and then out a foot and then burying that. So there should be no way mice can get in there. You know, hardware cloth keeps mice out. Screens, they chew right through. So try to, you know, mouse-proof your enclosures and then, you know, get mouse-proof feeders. They make them. And probably the problem is you got pigeons, so they're pretty good at spilling stuff. So I, I wouldn't overthink it either, though. You know, making your birds sick. Do you see where pigeons live? They live under overpasses, you know, and they're not sick. Uh, they're one of the toughest, hardiest birds out there. That's why they're a great livestock choice. Probably what we're going to do next year. It's probably our next big project. Probably next year we'll do put in a pigeon coop and fly, and uh, then be able to you know, have them go into the fly and the coop and let them roam free range. So uh, that's my thoughts on cats. Next one. Jack, you were right. No. Okay, it's not that bad. The future is here. Sam's Club scan and go app. Scan items as you place them in your cart and bypass checkout altogether. And there is an article. That I, <clears throat> I'm sorry. There is an article that I will have in today's show notes. Anyway, I'll have it in uh, show notes. Uh, but basically the person uh, just scans as they put things in their cart. And they show a receipt to a person at the door person looks at it. If you've been to Sands Club or, or Costco, you know how they do this. They they basically, if you have a few things, they count the number of items, uh, or they just randomly pick five or six items off the receipt, see if they're there, randomly pick four or five items out of the cart, see if they're on the receipt, and then they mark you off and send you out your way. Well, apparently now, um, Scan and Go is, is coming to Sands Club, but it's also being tested at several Walmart locations. It was at least... Three years ago, the first time I said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to put your stuff in your cart. It's automatically going to be scanned. You're going to walk out the door. As you walk out the door, you're going to pay. And it all will be automated. This is even just a first step. Like th This is the first step in this direction. What they're going to do is they're going to have every item like so that when it goes in the cart, you can't put it in the cart without scanning it. And they're going to have a... a See, people don't realize that you can do this. Like, you see the the, the 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 checkout lady, and she's like, beep, beep, and then that one item won't ring up, and you're trying to ring it up. But you know how sometimes, like, you have a, a, a anti-theft device, and you go out, and, like, the alarm goes off like you're some kind of criminal or something, and usually since you just paid, and, and the, 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 the person at the cash register knows that what they did wrong, and they tried to disarm it, they just go, just go. Right? Or sometimes they bring it back in, they check the thing, and they fix it again, and they send you back through. Right? And what we're get, ending up with is with RFID technology, you know, any item worth more than a buck can have this little chip the size of a grain of rice in it. And computers can scan one 
or 10,000 of those that fast. So what you'll eventually have is when you walk out the door, everything will be scanned, and every item that's in that store will be in an inventory list. Not like, you know, we have 50 of these, this particular this widget. But each widget will have its own RFID tag. And that RFID tag will cost less than two cents a piece. And they'll just build that into the price. They won't care that it's there. And Walmart's making a lot of manufacturers include that in everything they're doing already. They've been doing it for years. I used to consult for a company called Globe Ranger, and Walmart was on this initiative all the way back in 2006. So what will happen is you just throw all your shit in the cart, and you won't have to scan and go. The cart will just read it because an item with that RFID tag went into the cart. And then you'll hit a button to, you know, this is how much you owe. Do you want to pay? Uh, remove items because I'm, I went over my limit. So you take them out, put them back on the shelf. It'll adjust. You want to pay now? Yep, pay. And you'll just walk out. There won't even be a person there. There'll be a person standing by in case you're stealing. And just like the theft attorney thing, it'll just, when you walk out, it'll just, you know, a thousand items. It'll, it'll, it'll read them all instantly. I know you don't think it can, but it can. And then it'll basically justify against what you paid. It'll know who you are, and you go to your car. This is an interim where you're actually sitting there with a little gun scanning items as you put them in your cart. And here's the big thing. We hear about how criminal people really are. The only reason companies can do this is because, in general, people are honest. There's a lot of thieves. There's a lot of scum. But most people are honest. And that means you're looking for a small number of people that are thieves. And with that in mind, it becomes easier and easier to catch the people that can be trusted. I, I can't be trusted. I think we'll even have a point where retailers have end up having people with a higher trust factor. You've been shopping here for 25 years. You know, you come here every week. You're not just some random ass clown off the street. You know, just like, just like the airlines have a program where you can, you know, skip the lines and go through the security lines faster. That type of thing. I think you'll see that type of thing coming to a lot of different services. But in the end, I think this is all almost pointless because I think that the real future of shopping is online, even with pickup. I think what's going to happen a lot more in the future is you'll just buy everything before you get to the store. And as your, your vehicle is getting to the store, the automated system through an app in your phone will say, here comes Tom. His order is 117958. And it'll come to the front of the line and Tom will pull up. And there's your order. Tom will pick his order up. There'll be some kind of handshake between the phone and some kind of device. And that'll make sure that, you know, it's not stolen. It's not somebody else saying they're Tom. And bam. But anyway, you can read this article. I just kind of want to point out, I said this a long time ago. You guys have to excuse the dogs in the background there. They're getting excited. Anyway, with that, it, it, this went long. And again, I'm going to apologize. I know I'm not, I'm not at the top of my game. So I'm still dealing with this cold or flu or... Whatever the hell it is, I told my wife, she goes down to the, the, um, the, the memory care facility where my father-in-law is, and there's, you know, a hundred uh, old folks down there being taken care of. You brought me old people flu or something. She got all mad at me, but I, I, I think it's, you know, just like what she used to be a nurse. You're in that kind of environment. You pick up illnesses, and, uh, man, it's just not a good time to have it. But uh, I think I'm on the mend here. 
But if you like the, the show and the work that I do, please consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Since we went so long today, I'll leave it at that for, for that. Uh, and the other way to support us, of course, is through your shopping. When you go to Amazon to do that online shopping, shop at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com and click a link, and you don't have to buy anything that I recommend. You just click the link, you go to Amazon, buy your stuff. That's it. You pay the same amount you would pay anyway, but because you like the show, you do your shopping through my link. It's that simple. That's the easiest way that I've come up with uh, since I started the show for you guys to support us. It's painless. It doesn't really even cost you any extra time. One extra click, and you're there. Um, today, though, I do have on T-Spaz for you uh, a pretty cool product. It's something I've talked about before, but it's uh, it shows about brewing. It is a mini auto siphon racking cane. So when you brew, you have, let's say, like right now I have a, a batch of persimmon mead that I made at the workshop, and it, it finished like wicked fast, man. It really did. And uh, it's ready to go into a secondary fermenter. So you take this thing, you plug a little hose into it, and the hose comes with it, and you put it into your other vessel, and you make sure the one you're taking fluid out of is higher than the one that you're putting fluid into because physics, right? And then you take this thing, you push it down once or twice, and it starts to siphon, and it siphons everything, and it's got a little gap at the bottom. It keeps you from pulling all the crud up in the bottom. And you tilt the bottle a little bit to one side as you get down to the bottom, get most of the stuff out, and you've racked it. Or you're getting ready to bottle, same thing. You go into your bottling bucket, rack one more time. It's a great tool. It's uh, like 13 bucks. And it's at tspaz.com. And you'll notice there's tags on my tspaz stuff. And they'll all say something like this one says Brewing AZ. That stands for Brewing Amazon. So if you click that tag, you can see all the things I've ever reviewed related to brewing or electronics or blackout kits or emergency preparedness, etc. by using the tags in tspaz. I'm doing that for a reason. Once we get enough stuff in tspaz, I'll build like a catalog listing for you so you can pull those things up. But just know that that's there. And again, you can help support our show by shopping tspaz. Spaz.com. The other thing you can do is go to the TSP Business Directory. That's at tspbiz.com. And there you won't be supporting me. You'll be supporting other members of the TSP community uh, by doing business with other entrepreneurs in the Survival Podcast community. Um, it's amazing how many people have started businesses right out of the TSP community. And uh, today our TSP Business Directory supporter is Stark Laptops. They offer flat rate repairs plus parts and shipping on any Apple computer. Visit the TSP directory or go to starklaptops.com for help with any Apple computer need. Now, I think it's cool that they uh, offer flat rate repairs, but they also do sell used laptops from time to time. And uh, not from them because they didn't have any available when I did it, but recently I got a MacBook that was like a $2,500 MacBook when it's when it sold, and I got it for like $900. Now, it's a few years old, but... Phew, It's a hell of a machine. So that's something to always consider when you're looking for uh, computers. If you don't need the latest and greatest, especially with Macs, and I think when it comes to laptops, especially MacBooks are just so far above your, your, your PC laptops, um, consider buying used. And if you have one that needs some work, consider Stark Laptops for your repair needs. They offer flat rate repairs, and they support our community or business formed right out of TSP community. That brings us to our closing song today, and I wanted something kind of upbeat. Uh, again, we've had a lot of heavy topics lately, and uh, I was looking for music like from the year I graduated high school, 1990. And I realized why I love music from the 70s so much, because the 80s and 90s suck for music to a large, not all of it, but man, it just didn't have the the, the, the really great music that the 70s had. 
Uh, and that's why I guess I'm such a big fan of 70s music and why, like many people that love 70s rock, I turn to good quality country music after that. Um, but I remember then, I was dating this girl, and I remember taking her to a movie, and I said, well, what do you want to see? And she said, you pick. And I'm like, oh, this is never going to be good. Because uh, I'll pick wrong, and if I pick what I think's right, then I'll be miserable. And it turned out, like, the time we could go, there was, like, only two movies showing, and one was one we both agreed sucked, and the other one was Young Guns 2. And uh, she ended up really liking it, even though it was more of a guy's movie, and even though she hadn't seen the first Young Guns. And I think Young Guns and Young Guns 2 are just both really great, fun movies. And um, no matter how much they're not based on historical fact, they're, they're, they're pretty good movies. And uh, it has a pretty good songs, and I've played one for you before called Blood Brothers, and of course, Blaze of Glory was an, another song that was big out of that. This one actually is a, um, a cover song. It's, it's been done by a lot of other people. It's an older song, but Bon Jovi, who did all of the songs for the soundtrack, uh, redid this one. It's called Bang a Drum, and it's really a great song, and they did a really great version of it, a lot more upbeat, you know? Um, and I want to read kind of Just a couple stanzas, the last two stanzas uh, from it for you, and then I'll play it for you. You really listen to the song and, and realize how deep and meaningful it really is. He says, no, I don't claim to be a wise man, a poet, or a saint, just a man, another man who's searching for a better way. But my heart beats loud as thunder for the things that I believe. Sometimes I want to run for cover. Sometimes I want to scream. Bang a drum for tomorrow. Bang a drum for the past. Bang a drum for the heroes that won't come back. Bang a drum for the promise. Bang a drum for the lies. Bang a drum for the lovers and the tears they've cried. Bang a drum, bang it loudly, or as soft as you need. But as long as my heart keeps on banging, I got a reason to believe. It's another way of saying what I've told you for so long. How do you know if your mission here on this planet is over? If you can flog a mirror, you're not done yet. As long as your heart keeps on banging, you got a reason to believe. you got a reason to believe in the things that you actually can impact. I hope you enjoyed today's show, despite some of my you know, miscues and things like that. Uh, I promise to try to, to be better for you when I come back tomorrow. I'm working on it, guys. But uh, you know, every once in a while, an illness interrupts all of our lives. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Straight to his grave, and the rest of us, straight to hell. <laughs> 